Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On this episode of The Booze Hustle, I talked to legendary Karen McNeil, American author, journalist, and wine educator. So if you're anything like me, one of the first books I ever owned about wine was Karen's book, The Wine Bible, a book that famously took almost eight years for her to complete. Almost every wine professional I know owns a copy, making Karen's book one of the most influential pieces of wine education of our time. As far as wine journalism goes, Karen's career is an aspirational reflection of years of incredible feats. She was one of the first wine and food uh, editors of USA Today in the early 80s. She hosted a PBS series called Wine, Food, and Friends, for which she won an Emmy. She's won the James Beard Award for Wine and Spirits Professional and been nominated two other times, and is the creator and chairman emerita at the Red Center for Professional Wine Studies at the Culinary Institute of America uh, in St. Helena, California. Most recently, she's launched an online newsletter called Wine Speed that offers subscribers a fast, informative snapshot of her recommendations, news, quizzes, things like that. And all of that on its own is remarkable, right? But what I most resonated with about Karen, which I didn't anticipate to, was how she has built this career on tenacity, hard work, how much she's really shaped the wine world and restaurant service. I discovered we have similar origin stories and she was really gracious and opened up about things that she typically doesn't talk too much about. One of my favorite things on this podcast is really the common thread when I talk to people about their backgrounds. And one thing always kind of remains a constant. People who are really successful have these incredibly amazing backstories. You know, they went up against adversity or they started, you know, with really modest beginnings and humble beginnings and had to kind of, you know, hustle their way through life. And that is completely true with Karen as well. And I had such a great conversation with her. She continues to inspire me. She's a icon in journalism and in the wine world. And I really hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Cheers. Where in St. Helena are you guys? I'm actually going to be out there next weekend. We are right on Main Street, uh, just a few doors south of Model Bakery, which is oh, okay. for many people, they would know Model Bakery. Um, we're in the, the big green building in the center of town, which is actually the oldest building in St. Helena was built wow. in, in the 1880s. Okay. So it's very nice. It's got a lot of good old bones. And um, yeah, it's been standing here in the Napa Valley more than 100 years now. 
Mm-hmm. And it's where you record a lot of your interviews. I see your background and, and where you do your um, a lot of your wine speed videos, which is great. Yes. Where are you come? Where are you coming from? Where Where are you? So I live in Connecticut. Oh, nice. Um, I work for a wine and spirit supplier. I cover the Northeast for our fine wine craft spirits portfolio. Um, I do kind of education, sales, distributor wrangling. And then uh, I do this to kind of maintain a bit of sanity. I went to school for journalism Mm -hmm. and uh, thought I was going to make a career in journalism and was quickly bummed out when I graduated and realized that I couldn't have a career in journalism because I didn't have any money. Uh, and the jobs that I were be- I was being offered in in Chicago, it was I-, I wouldn't have been able to make a living wage. And I was working in restaurants, and I was making a lot of money in a restaurant. And I was like, well, maybe this is, <laughs> yeah. maybe I'm gonna rethink this a little bit. So I've always just kept writing, and, um, and this is a passion. And then leaned into the restaurant, and then wine and spirits as a career builder. So, you know, I I, I also like the excitement of the restaurant world. I feel like. Being at home with my own thoughts too much is not a good thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's fun to be around restaurant people and still be able to even now like connected to that world a great deal. So I get the best parts. I when I started out, I I worked in restaurants uh, for a while, and I agree with you. The adrenaline every day is so good, mm-hmm. and and I also agree with you that it's really incredibly hard to to make your living as a journalist. There are, you know, the number, when I when I began, the number of newspapers that had wine columnists was probably in the 30s. Now there are mm-hmm. essentially two, right? There's the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, and those are the only two uh, papers that have mm-hmm. a full-time paid on-staff wine writer. It's amazing. Yep. I know. And it's everything gets fielded out now. And I remember my senior year, I did this. um, I forget, it was like some sort of consortium with writers from across the country. And Arthur Sulzberger Jr. was there. And I had such high hopes about this career in journalism. And then I realized really quickly, I was like, I was there for magazine journalism. I was like, all of the magazines are closing. (laughs) This is, this is not good. Um, And then I have several friends who are still writers and they have, you know, they hustle and they make a living, Um, but it's a hard, it's a hard life. And, um, you know, I grew up with no money and I decided a long time ago that I was not going to spend my life that way. So Um, I was a hustler. I decided, like, let's figure out a way to, you know, do both things. And good for you. You have. And you are. I'm tr- I'm trying. <laughs> do it. We're all just doing our best, Karen. <laughs> That's exactly right. I did. I did. Um. I did want to say, you know, leading up to this interview today, um, obviously, I have a lot of colleagues uh, that were that know who you are, and you are just so well known and revered in the wine industry, um, especially among women. Um, so I was kind of, you know, outsourcing. I'm like, what do you want to ask Karen? <laughs> and it was so funny. I had some pretty great um, feedback from some people. But, you know, that really is just a testament to your impact to the wine business, um, you know, over the course of your career. So I was doing a lot of um, as much research as I could do on on your your background. And I was really surprised to learn how young you were when you started out um, as a writer. So I I was I was I was interested just because you know everything I've read about you like starting out I read you were 19 when you went to New York um and you started as a writer. So I'm I'm curious like where where are you from? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And where did you go to school? 
Those are questions I rarely answer. Um, oh. But I, I will answer, of course. I grew up in, um, or I was born in Boston and spent maybe 10 years there and then grew up way out in the Nevada desert outside of Reno. Um, my family also was very poor. And uh, so I left home at a very young age and um, made my way eventually to New York City with the, I arrived on Thanksgiving day with $6 left um, and knew nobody. So it was, uh, it was a bit of a trial by fire, uh, mm -hmm. but I did, I did hope in New York that I could become a writer and you can tell how young I was because that's a, that is a, a dream of naivete in a sense. It, it, <laughs> it, um, it takes a lot. Um, and in my case, I, you know, I worked during the day, uh, two jobs and apprenticed myself at night and was writing on the side. Um, but even so I collected 324 rejection slips before my first mm. article was published. Wow. This, you know, it, it, there's a bit of naivete, but I think there's also this really great thing that happens when you don't have a safety net. You get this, I have to do it. So I, I you know, you, you pull this bravery from this deep well of yourself. And when you don't have that many responsibilities or people to take care of, it's a lot easier, I think, to like just dive in and you're just going to do it until something works. I was reading that one of the first articles you had published was in the Village Voice, and it was about cheese. Is that is that correct? Artisanal cheese? Close. Butter. Okay. What was it? Oh, butter. 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 Yes. So did you have an interest in food and wine from an early age, or was this one of those, you know, I'm going to research and I'm going to become an expert and then dive in that way? You know, there were two real reasons, Kristen. One was that writing about food, when I first started out, I was writing about everything, um, politics, social issues, women's issues. And uh, I was poor enough to be on food stamps in New York. And one day I, I had what I thought was this brilliant idea. Maybe I should start writing about food because maybe they gave you samples. <laughs> and that would be a way <laughs> to uh, improve my food stamp diet, um, which it turned out was true. Um, but, <laughs> but I also, uh, quite more seriously, I, I did always love food and eventually wine too, because um, as you would know, we, we sort of share similar backgrounds. When you don't have a lot of money, food is one of your only pleasures. And I loved, and, and it could be the simplest, meatloaf, whatever, right, mm -hmm. a taco. Um, I, I loved the fact also that food was a door into culture, that it was a door into friendship, it was a door into um, getting to know people, but it mm -hmm. also revealed all kinds of aspects of culture. And of course, later I realized that wine does the same thing. So, so I, to this day, I love being a journalist about now principally wine, but sometimes food too, because of that, because they reveal culture. I wonder if it wasn't the avenue of wine that you went down, what was the other special interest? Because everyone I know that's a, a career professional in one way or the other, they have, you know, the thing that they're most known for. 
And then they have the thing that everyone else knows that they do, but nobody else knows. So what is what is that thing that you, you are also very passionate about that isn't wine? Boy, is there anything besides wine and food? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I... I Good question. You know, Fair. I, hope I do... Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, sometimes people ask that question in a different way. What would you do if you um, didn't need to write about wine and food? and Or what do you do when you're not writing about wine and food? And I'm like, eat and drink. I, I, I don't, my life is, yeah. my professional life is also my personal life. But I, I suppose the one other area that is very related to these two things is I'm fascinated by the the kind of anthropology of dining and um, service and where did manners come from and why do we put the fork on the left and all of those kinds of aspects of, mm -hmm. of dining behavior. In the 1980s, I started a school in New York called the New York Professional Service School that actually taught servers professional dining room service. So it's related, but I, I love, I love that too. Yeah. I think that I've always had, I was always attracted to fine dining in my restaurant career because it was the antithesis of what I knew. And it seemed so aspirational and so nice. Like, Oh, people don't eat on their couch while watching TV all the time. Like <laughs> there's, Oh, there's like a specific fork you should be using. Um, and I often felt like a caveman, um, when I first started eating in nice restaurants, I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is fancy. And I think I actually kind of maybe pushed against it a little bit, it being young and being like, ugh, what, what is, you know, this is too fancy. But as I've gotten older, I very much started to appreciate the ritualistic, or tradition behind things, um, because I think it really does create some comfort or sense memory from really great experiences that you've had. So um, I find that really interesting as well. How long did you run that school for? About almost 10 years. And wow. the, the interesting aspect of that is in the beginning, I thought, Oh, think of all the restaurants with terrible service. This is going to be great. This is, a, you know, <laughs> the, the school will be packed. Um, and in point of fact, no restaurant with bad service ever sent us a single waiter. Uh, the restaurants who did were the restaurants like Union Square Cafe, all, all of Danny Meyer's restaurants, mm -hmm. the Four Seasons in New York, restaurants that already were quite extraordinary in terms of their service, you know, wanted to get even better. And, and I suppose that's a parallel for anything that we do it's it's often when you are already pretty good at something that you have this internal drive to be mm -hmm. even better at what you do that's so true i talk to people all the time that want to be um, consultants and i say you know often the places that um, need the most work are not going to pay you and it's, a, a part of it is they don't they can't afford to pay you because their business probably isn't doing well because, you know, it's like the chicken or the egg, like full circle thing. But that's really interesting. So from there, you kind of segued this career into being a wine editor, obviously, famously, the wine Bible. And really, I have a lot of questions about the wine Bible, and I'm sure you get these all the time. But I, I wonder, you know, reflecting back on all these really incredible accomplishments, is there one thing that like you look back today and, and think like, this is the thing that I'm most proud of, the, the feather in your cap? What would that be? 
I, I suppose it would be, um, you know, when I, when I was starting out and thinking about and, and seeing if I could become a published writer, I, you know, there were, <laughs> there were no real good external signs that this was going to be possible. I'd never taken a writing class. I didn't go to journalism school. Um, but in my mind, I, I loved the idea of trying to communicate ideas. And so early on, I thought, you know, I'm going to try every type of writing. Writing books, writing for magazines, writing for newspapers, mm -hmm. radio, television, advertising writing. Um, and in fact, the last stone kind of in that circle has been our most recent endeavor, digital writing, which is, which is our, our newsletter, Wine Speed. But I think when you do that, when you try and master or at least um, jump in the pool of different types of communication, at some point they wind up helping one another. So, you know, it was very helpful to have done radio, for example, a, a live radio call-in show in New York, when I was writing, uh, when I later wrote The Wine Bible, because I, in radio, there was this, this idea that every 11 minutes, a, a, read, a listener's attention changes radically. And so every 11 minutes, you have to change. You have to speed up or slow down or, or infuse the conversation with a different kind of emotion or something. And, you know, the Wine Bible, when it first came out, the first edition came out in 2001, it was a radically different kind of wine writing. Nobody mm -hmm. was writing about wine in that way. Um, and in, in the way of all these nuggets and side boxes and things you could quickly, sure. um, quickly, quickly learn about and in, in a fascinating way learn about. So I, I think I'm proud that I've used different types of communication to inform other types. It's like a big star in my mind sure. and it all comes together in the center. It's all connected, yeah, and everything informed writing that, I'm sure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Think about the wine Bible for a moment because what an undertaking, first of all. <laughs> I, I think most people would be um, hesitant to even try. And famously, it did take quite a long time to, to to work on that. How did you approach that process? And did you have a team of people working with you? Or was this like a complete just put my head down work for many, many years? Yes, I, I have a team now, but I didn't then. And wow. the first wine Bible took eight years to write and then two years before it was fully published eight unpaid years Whoa. almost no one works on a project for eight years unpaid but um and and the most amazing thing about the wine bible i i came to to understand this years later wh why it had very little competition was because when i started the research for the wine bible there was the internet was not what it is today Mm -hmm. um, every, in fact, even wineries that had websites, um, websites were not considered by publishers legitimate fact-checking entities. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I had, I had 40 feet of trans-file boxes of notes, of phone <laughs> calls and faxes from every wow. place in the world. You can you can imagine without an internet just how hard it would be to even find the right person who mm. knew what you were after. I mean, I remember, I remember trying to figure out something for the Hungarian chapter, and I thought, oh my God, where? I mean, like, where do you start? Um, yeah, and, truly. But I, I've always written every word of every wine bible. This last wow. third edition that came out last year. I did have a number of WSET students who, who helped me as researchers. Mm -hmm. um, but even so, I would say I'm, I'm the toughest researcher of all. Uh, I would agree. I, <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. And especially because it's, it's a living, breathing document. This is not a book that gets published and then you're done. It's as the wine industry evolves and grows and changes and wineries changes and regions change and winemakers are doing crazier and wilder things. I mean, this is something that w could go on forever. And and with that in mind, like, what is the legacy of the wine Bible? Like, when, w you know, 
you're not gonna be able to write it in a hundred years from now. So oh, <laughs> are you yes, gonna I create am. some? <laughs> <laughs> well, you give me your secrets, Karen. Yes. Um, you know, I think a book like that will um, continue in much the way that Hugh Johnson's World Atlas of Wine um, also was. Up there. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's on my bookshelf too. Um, and Hugh Johnson is such a wonderful uh, man and a good friend of mine. But he, you know, he kept doing it for years, and then he uh, he decided to co-author it with Jancis Robinson, another friend. And and so maybe at some point there will be a co-author on on the Wine Bible. But it it's the it's the way of talking about wine that I think is so different. Most, almost everyone who even picks it up for a second and thumbs through it will, will say to me, gosh, it feels like you're just talking to me. And that always makes me feel very happy and proud because, because the Wine Bible is not didactic. It's not me mm-hmm. kind of telling you how it is. Uh, it's not me journalism. It's it's a kind of we're in this together tone of journalism, which which I think for wine, the Wine Bible was the first. And I very much appreciate that. I think one of the things that I most enjoy about the book is that tone specifically. And I also, in watching a lot of interviews with you and you know some of your videos on Wine Speed, I very much way, um, enjoy the way that you talk about wine in a non-pretentious way because I think that's where I think we, we start to lose some of the younger generations. And when it's, you know, gatekept idea or, you know, you have to have a lot of education to understand it, you know, you really start to kind of exclude people that might really enjoy learning about it. And I think my first wine job, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my first wine job in Chicago is at a wine bar called Volo. And the wine director there, his name was Shad with an S, and he was very cool. He was a hippie, he played the guitar, and, um, you know, he was just, he made it so easy for me to understand. He would talk to me like, oh, you want to learn about a grape called Zweigelt? And I was like, <laughs> yes, I do. And he he actually is the one that told me to buy the wine Bible. Well, actually, for, that's not true. First, he told me to read wine for dummies because I really didn't get it. Uh, and then as I learned more, then we graduated to the wine Bible and so on. Um, but I think that's so important. And I wonder what your thoughts are about how we're going to reach or how are we going to continue to outreach to the younger generation of, of, of consumers, essentially, who seem to be dropping off in the wine area? Yeah, you know, I, I started worrying about this myself about, I would say, six years ago, I thought to myself, okay, the Wine Bible, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good. I'm proud of it. But it's, it's a big book. It, you know, weighs two pounds. And, and six or seven years ago, all of a sudden, there was this entity called a blog. And mm. I remember thinking, hmm, I don't know. I mean, I'd spent my whole life trying to be paid for articles. Now I was now like, <laughs> here were all these people writing for free. What does this mean? Um, yeah. But as I watched blogs um, proliferate, with the exception of just a couple like Alder Yarrow, who is, who is so good, um, 
But with the exception of just a few people, a lot of blogs were, they were kind of fast and furious, but they were very minimal in terms of fact-checking. There, was, there mm. was no editor, right? Nobody said, um, how do you know that, in fact, Pinot Noir is the second leading grape in, Aust in New Zealand or whatever? And so I thought, okay, if I can do the wine Bible, I'm going to turn the binoculars completely around and create something that is fast and fascinating and hopefully will appeal to a whole different demographic. And, but it will have some level of authoritativeness behind it. Mm -hmm. So, and that became our digital newsletter, Wine Speed, which I'm sure there are people who have never even seen the Wine Bible who are subscribers to Wine Speed because it is exactly that. It's, it's fast, it's fun, it's furious. We have, you know, you can read the whole thing in less time than it takes to open a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. and, and people love it. It's their like weekly dose of wine mm -hmm. education comes to you, uh, to your email box. And um, so I think, you know, wine communication has to change. And uh, I like to think that with Wine Speed, we're in that, uh, we're on that, helpful gerbil wheel of, of helping wine communications change and be more modern, modern and um, yeah, more fun, more fast. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot of content out there. It's just how are we serving it to people and how are they consuming it? And I think that's, that's the age old question now is, you know, how to capture everyone's you know, two minutes of attention. And I, and I do very much enjoy wine speed. Thank you. Um, you know, you guys introduced me to wine speed and I, I have spent quite a bit of time on there and I enjoy the quizzes and there's great videos as well. And, and I was, I was actually, which, which interview I was watching earlier. Um, Oz, what's his name? Oz. Oh, Oz Clark. Oh yeah. I re I enjoyed that interview that you did with him. So I think that you are accomplishing that in taking, you know, something is, dense as an or even encyclopedia like and finding a way to give it to people in smaller doses that are a little bit more exciting in the moment. I do I do still worry about the amount of consumption that's happening though, not just in the information space but in the wine space. In your world, I'm sure you talk to a ton of wine professionals. What do you think that that is specifically that's different um, today about wine drinkers than maybe wine drinkers 20 years ago? Yes, you know, there are sort of two schools, not two schools, but two viewpoints here. One is that, um, you know, the, the sky is falling in, millennials are not drinking wine, and <laughs> Gen Z uh, people are not either. And the other, the other viewpoint is, well, give them time, right? People come around, people change their drinking um, habits and patterns. I'm, I'm a bit in the latter uh, school, I think. I don't, I don't view beer or cocktails as worrisome. I, I do view this one thing as worrisome, though, and that is that very few voices out there are talking about why wine matters. It's, mm. it's, it's emotional uh, connection to nature, its ability to bring people together, the, the whole communal history of wine. It's not just 
alcohol, right? Um, because there are a lot of ways you could just get alcohol. But I find that the story of wine and, and why it touches us, that, that story isn't being told enough. Mm. And that's, that's going to be a problem because almost everyone who falls in love with wine falls head over heels and they never they never unfall out of love. They never say, oh, you know what, I drank wine there for a few years, but now I'm past it, now I'm moving on to something else. Once, you're, once you fall in love with wine, you usually really find its, its mystery, its fascinations, its magic, its transformative ability. All those things start to really get to you in a good way. And I think the wine industry needs to tell that story more. That's true. And to be fair, and I think I am also in the latter camp, I don't think I drank that much wine when I was very young anyway. I think it started when you were a little bit more into drinking wine for enjoyment, not just because you're in a, you know party mode or something. But I, I, I very much appreciate that. And I actually interviewed for this season a gentleman, he's a professor, who wrote a book called Finding Meaning in Wine. I don't know if you've seen that floating around in the ether yet, but he spent a lot of time with winemakers and interviewing some really fantastic you know, personalities out in California and really kind of doing a lot of literary comparisons to wine versus art. And I, I you know, I'm excited for that episode because I think it, it's really helpful in creating that conversation um, around meaning of wine and, and its place in our society. So thank you for, for mentioning that. I also wonder, you taste a lot of wine, <laughs> obviously. Um, how many wines would you say a year that you're tasting? We usually taste here in my office um, three times a week at a minimum. And I would say we are usually we taste probably 2,000 to 2,500 wines a year. My gosh. Um, and that's, that kind of keeps you knowledgeable globally. Sure. Um, uh, and of course, I, um, you know, it's, it's funny that a lot of my British colleagues think of, when they think of me, they think of, oh, Napa Valley in California. But we, we just finished tasting 125 Chianti Classicos this week. Um, wow. So we, we have to stay, uh, both because of wine speed, but also because of the wine Bible, we have to stay uh, global. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's lucky. Some woman has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, um, I know this is going to be a very trivial question, but this is actually something one of my colleagues uh, wanted me to ask you, but you must have the hangover rest, like cure by now. Like, what is it? Because <laughs> if anyone has it, it's you. <laughs> yeah, boy. I, I mean, it is a concern, right? Because you have to, um, you have to spit well, you have to drink a lot of water, you, you have to make sure you're hydrated. There was a time when I could taste, I don't know, you know, 50 Cabernets, and I never do that anymore. Um, mm. You know, I'd rather taste every day and taste 12 wines than one day taste 50 wines. You um, can't fill your tongue for three days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I also think that exercise really helps. I'm, you know, I work out every single morning, 
And mm -hmm. even if I wake up and I think, oh, that was one too many Chianti Classicos last <laughs> night, I get on that exercise bike no matter what. Um, speed up the metabolism, drink bunches of water, and uh, mm -hmm. keep going. That's good advice. I need to do that more. I, I, I really do want to know, like, what, I, I, listen, it's like picking your favorite child is picking your favorite wine when you work in the wine business, but is there something that you go to more often that is like your comfort wine that you drink? I would say, well, I do drink a glass of champagne every night. And, right. uh, and I have for 20 years. Champagne is so, it's so fabulous. It's such an expressive wine. And the fact that it is, relatively speaking, low in alcohol is also kind of, is, is very nice. But I love, um, champagne has such energy. I think it's, it's all those limestone and marl soils maybe, but I love its briskness. I, I, love, I love it when champagne is really starched and minerally. Um, and best of all, I suppose, I, I like the idea of demarcating the day from the night. Um, I, I work a lot, and but of course everybody can work with a glass of champagne on their desk. Um, that's my view. That's actually the view of my employees too. If we're here at six o'clock and everybody's still working, they're like, "How about we open a bottle of champagne?" Okay, I mean, we should. We Always. should, and we do. So there's that. And I, I the last few years, I have just so fallen in love with. Pinot Noir from the way the far west Sonoma coast, mm. and also from the Willamette Valley. I'm, yes. I'm ready to open a, a Pinot Noir from either of those places at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, so I would say those two are my kind of comfort wines. Sure. And that kind of goes back to, you know, this idea of ritual and tradition and formality is, is having that glass of champagne every day and separating the day from the night. So that tracks that you do that. Those wines being things that stand out for you, are, is there a particular, and we don't have to talk about any wineries or anything like that, but is there a particular wine that you think is very overrated that people just kind of go bananas for and, and you don't quite understand why? Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I think that one of the principles of, of wine is to, to learn the idea that when you don't like a wine, maybe you haven't tasted enough of it yet. <laughs> when, I'm, I'm being serious. When I, yeah. when, I don't, when I don't like a wine, I think, okay, well, wait a minute. A, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with this wine? Okay, B, am I paying enough attention? And C, have I drunk enough of this yet? And I learned that uh, lesson as a young woman um, the very first time I went to Jerez. And I thought, I'm not sure I could drink sherry like you know, five times a day for seven <laughs> straight days. But what I realized is that some wines are rites of passage. Um, and foods are like that too. Almost no one fell in love with sushi the first time they tasted it. It was the repeated tasting of it. And sure. then one day, you know, the light switch flipped and you sort of got it like, oh, I get sushi now. And then you fell completely in love with it. 
So I think wines are like that too. Um, Mm -hmm. Certain wines I've needed to taste over and over again until the light switch flips. Yeah, that's great advice. I remember very early in my wine journey, um, every time I tasted specific Italian wines, I was like, is this bottle corked? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't understand quite yet. And then over time, Italian wines are now my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> on like a Tuesday night, I'll open a bottle of Italian wine every time. Well, that's that's actually very good advice, especially for people who are just learning about wine. And my favorite thing to say to people is uh, don't yuck someone's yum. You like what you like. And if you enjoy it, that's all that matters. Um, and if it's wine, bonus points, buy what you like and, and enjoy it. So Well, I'd like to just circle back for a minute to wine speed. I'd really like to talk a little bit about what your goals are for wine speed, what the future looks like for it. And and, uh, for our listeners, it is a subscription-based e-newsletter that comes to your your, um, email, but you could also visit it on um, their website, winespeed.com. But would you mind just telling us a little bit more about like the, the future for it and what people could expect from it? Sure. You know, when I think, I think when people think about reading about wine, they, there's a hesitancy. They think, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be like going back to school. This is going to be uh, very pedantic and heavy <laughs> and, um, you know, gray column after gray column. And I wanted to change that dynamic because... For me, the world of wine is endlessly fascinating. And one of the biggest things people ask me is, how do you find all this stuff? Like if anybody knows the ratio of sheep to winemakers in New Zealand, it's me, right? (laughs) I I have found that fact. And and stuff like that is is fun to know. It's uh, it's what keeps wine lively and, and to some extent humorous and you know, we one of the first things that we uh, created with WineSpeed is the wine quiz. And I mean, there, the, the wine quiz, there are so many people who love wine who they will email me afterwards saying, damn it, I got the wine quiz wrong. I know whole teams, whole sales teams who uh, like compete every week for how many people get the wine quiz uh, right. And, um, you know, it's a uh, so our I guess our goal is to keep doing that because a little bit like the wine Bible I think with wine speed I I stumbled on something that had that people could relate to and that had resonance and I I've always figured if it's in a sense if it's fascinating to me maybe it'll be fascinating to all kinds of other people. And um, that was true for, for the Wine Bible, and it's certainly true for Wine Speed. Um, and I, I, I like bringing to people every week something that is almost, in a sense, right in front of them, but they've never thought about it before. Like, mm-hmm. the, one that, the idea that comes to mind is, like, where do cases come from? Like, what, what was the first wine to be put in a case? And why does a case have 12 bottles? Why doesn't it have 10 bottles? You know, that's the kind of fun, odd stuff, but fascinating stuff that, um, that wine speed is always tracking down. And I, I always know that we're, we're successful when I overhear someone say something like, 
Did you know, I just read this interesting thing. Did you know that da-da-da-da-da is true? So, yeah. We're, uh, That's a, we're all- it's a great educational resource. And I, I highly recommend to my listeners that are maybe distributor managers um, to use this maybe as like an incentive. So, you know, you hit a sales goal, you get a subscription for a year to wine speed. I think that's a, a great idea. Thank you. We, we also, we also do do corporate subscriptions, by the way, and oh, good. lots of sales companies and wine companies who have multiple employees get a, uh, it's quite a deal and they get a, a corporate subscription for all of their staff. So just wanted to throw great. that in. No, that's great to know, and I'm, I'm sure that's going to be very helpful information for a lot of our listeners because we do have a lot of distributor sales reps and teams that listen to the show. Well, I just want to thank you for your time. You've been so generous with your time. I know how busy you are. You've got a whole operation going there, <laughs> um, and I really hope that one day I get to meet you in person and uh, drink a glass of champagne with you. I would love that. Absolutely, Kristen. Me too. Thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.